Hello, everyone. This is your girl, Donna D, and I am back with another podcast. Today, I have Mr. Edward here, and he is going to talk about sex, drugs, and cancer, <laughs> or something like that. Sure. Well, Hi, how you doing? <laughs> welcome. Um, so can you begin by introducing yourself, telling everyone who you are? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Edward Miskey. I'm based out of New York City. I moved here to be a pop star and an actor and all the all the typical shit you hear people <laughs> moving to New York City about, um, you know, doing. And I kind of I got I got the opportunities to do all of those things, but it was all derailed with a really um, rare cancer diagnosis. And that really pivoted my life in a totally different direction. Never have I ever had any aspirations to be a writer or an author, but I did in fact write a book about this whole experience. Um, and here I am as a writer and an author now. So here we, here we are uh, in, in the year of our Lady Gaga, figuring out what, what's happening next. <laughs> okay, so how are you able to be so happy and so positive about the situation? I mean, I know it's 10 years after, but were you always this positive about it? I I mean while it was happening no I tried really hard I really did I try and that was mostly for the benefit of my parents and my my sisters and my friends that would come along um and I I did try to save face and be like you know cancer picked the wrong person and, rah, 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 rah. and like there were there was a tiny little shred of me that believed that because it was like this can't be real the whole thing didn't feel real it was just an insane experience from the get from the get go and um, I just, uh, <laughs> I, I tried, I, again, I tried really hard and it was easier because I had a really great network of support through my friends and family and they made it, they took a lot of the burden on themselves by making sure I was taken care of and, and you know, had people around to like give me energy and happiness and all that. Um, but I definitely had my days that were like, get out of my room and I don't want to deal with this. And <laughs> Um, and it's it's definitely been a challenge for myself on like a personal identity level from from then until now and it's not always easy but I think I'm removed enough from it now that I can look back and have a good laugh and be like that was so insane okay so what are some of those positive takeaways that you that you gained within the last 10 years I mean just the confidence in knowing that my friends and family are there for me for one you know like i know who my friends are that's that's dead ass for sure and the other part of that is too that i can look back and and see that we were intentionally creating good times and we were intentionally creating good moments during that period of time so that should have something happened and i wouldn't i would have no longer been with us that my friends and family had moments to be like oh that was you know like there wasn't always bad times during that period like there was good that came out of that we did have fun we had parties in my room i was like the go-to room for all the nurses because we were just cool and uh <laughs> it was definitely the cool kids room um but we we kind of did that on purpose and we just decided like we can't have every day be terrible and I, I think that, in hindsight, is my biggest takeaway of that period of time was just making sure that we were all at least laughing a little bit, you know? Okay, and you're, you're so young. I know you're young now, so I can imagine you are, <laughs> you are Thank glowing. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's my ring light. So it's like, <laughs> we tend to think that cancer is for older people. 
So when it hits someone that's young, like I know that had to be really big. So what was that? What was that like? So I was 24 years old when this little like tumor situation popped up under my arm. And by the time I had officially been diagnosed, I had turned 25. So, you know, you're at your peak hot at 25. You're at like peak excitement for life and things are starting to finally like jiggle into, into place with what your life is going to become. And it definitely felt that way. I was performing all over the country. I had been, started to get calls from bigger casting agencies. And, it, and like I just won a big scholarship through the Actors Union and all this other stuff. And, and it very much felt like an exciting time where like, I'm doing it. Like I moved here to do this and I'm doing it. And like, it, I'm starting to climb whatever ladder there is in that industry. And then it all went away. And it, it was very jarring because I tried really hard to hang on to that. Um, for, like very seriously considering if I could go down to Florida and do a, a role, a starring role in, or a supporting role in a musical um, down there while I was getting chemo. Like chemo ends on this day. If I fly out here and they like wig and make up me, I can make this happen. Um, and my oncologist was just like, that part of your life is over now. And it really, like that just completely cut me up. So you know, it, it was big extremes. That's why I kind of refer to it as an, a ridiculous period of time because it was like this high of like doing the thing you moved to the city to do and like making your dreams happen and this is what's happening and then having it completely crash down to the ground and hit rock bottom zero. It was a really intense dichotomy of feelings and it was very, very difficult to deal with, especially because when you're 25, like you you know you're young and hot. Like maybe I didn't know it in, in that sense, but it was like, I know that this is peak. <laughs> okay, so you took that. Well, let me say this. So before cancer was when you, you moved to New York because you were trying to go into acting in the musical theater, correct? Correct. And then that's when everything just hit you and then life just completely changed that fast. Well, at that point, I had already been living in the city for six or seven years. Um, I moved to the city when I was like 18, 19 years old, and I just was like not going to go to college and just ran away and joined the circus, basically. <laughs> um, and and so, yeah, I mean, it was I had very much established my footing in the city at that point, and um, I had a network of friends and people and and. I was starting to get recognized at places, which was nice. And then, you know, I went off on this one particular job and it was just over. Wow. It's just, I mean, I guess it's it's just it's sad sometimes, but it, it's amazing how you're able to just even, you know, kind of talk about it without, you know, tearing up a little. But that's, that's brave and that's, <laughs> it's awesome that you can do yeah. that. I mean, I've certainly had moments of tearing up for sure. Like that's definitely happened. Not so much recently, but I mean, you know, it's I'm now 11 years out. Literally tomorrow is my cancer anniversary. Um, so we're hitting 11 years tomorrow, which is insane, insane to me. Um, but, you know, I cried all the tears I needed to, you know, like mourning the death of that life is way behind me. And I've had multiple lives since, you know, and I'm super lucky. And I think 
it's easy to bounce back from something like that when you are young because you are young and you have so much life in front of you that when you get the the hey get out of jail free card moment it's it's not as hard to contend with because you have hopefully many more decades in front of you right and you know also a lot of times when bad things happen we tend to stress and get really sad and worry and that stress can kind of become a killer itself so i think yeah it makes it worse 100 percent. definitely helps that you stay well you know of course everybody has ups and downs but for the most part you were able to stay positive and you did say that your support system was huge so i know one of your questions you always say something advice that you would give to somebody what type of advice could you give to someone who has cancer but um no support system no support system is really tough. Um, I was, again, really, really lucky to have one. I don't know how I would have made through that, made it through that without one. And I guess I would just say, try to find people, you know, like people are willing to, and, and be careful. And I'll, 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 I'll explain that caveat in a moment. But, you know, try and find people because innately humans are good and they want to help. And if you ask for help, most of the time people will rally around you. And I know it it feels gross to like put something on Facebook or like, you know, reach out to people and ask for help or whatever. But like, you know, you, you're not going to get it unless you ask for it. So do do that. Now, my caveat is that I didn't tell anyone it was happening. I told my closest friends and I told my family and that was it. And I basically disappeared for a whole year. Um, just off of social media, wiped off the face of the earth. Like I was not there. And this, the bad part about that is that nobody noticed. Like I came back and they were like, Oh, how you been? It was like, I almost <laughs> died, you know, the rough year. <laughs> right. Wow. But, um, you know, the, and, and I will add to that, that being careful of who you ask is so important because there are people who will respond to your call for help and they will manipulate and they will use you and they will try and um, I don't even know what the word for it is, but it's very much like I call them trauma junkies where like they have to be around someone who's going through chaos for their own benefit in some way. And I don't even know how to articulate that, but I certainly had one or two instances where people came out of the woodwork when they caught wind of what was happening and like kind of glommed onto me in a bad way. And it just became, that became like, stop texting them, stop responding, just like let, let the people around you be around you and don't out seek out, out, don't seek out external validation for the sake of validation when you already have safety around you. You know what we call that? Well, you know what the old folks call it? They say misery loves Oh, a hundred percent misery loves company. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very just, familiar. <laughs> some people are just toxic and they are attracted to some, you know, they feel it's weird, but there are some people that get off on other people's, you know, misfortune. It's really sad. It's, it's, it's so scary. weird. It is. It's scary. Okay, so now we're gonna change subjects a little. Okay. Okay. All right, so Let's talk about this sex, drugs, and cancer. Where did this come from? This came from, like, lived experience, you know? Like, again, I was 24, 25 years old. I was hot 24, 25 years old. <laughs> um, you know, and look at, looking back now, I'm like, I was way hotter than I thought I was. Um, and so when something like this happens to you, like, 
you're not dead yet you know like you you still want to feel good you still want to feel attractive you still want other people to make you feel attractive um and so i very much sought out external validation through sex and relationships that were not good for me but i thought they would help i thought they would make me feel like my old self or feel better about whatever self i was in that moment i had a boyfriend at that time and like that ended and that was really terrible and traumatizing because it happened during chemo right before i was going to start a stem cell transplant which was like the scariest part of this whole thing because they kept being like oh you might die you know we're going to do this and there's a chance that you might not make through it and it was like and your boyfriend broke up with you <laughs> great wow keeping you when you're um, down huh yeah, really, like kicking me when I'm down as much as possible. But, um, you know, like that was kind of the sex part was that it was just like a raging spiral of like, I feel and I look like trash and I want to not. And so how can I do that? And I chose, you know, hooking up with random people because I thought it would help. And it most certainly didn't. <laughs> um, but like the the sex, drugs, and cancer part is is not that I was like mainlining heroin or anything. But you know, I I did um, I I drank my way through treatment. You know, I had I got the blessing from my doctor that I could go out and have like one or two drinks, but don't overdo it. And I was like, okay. And I went out and I overdid it. <laughs> and I went out and I overdid it a lot because I lived through that night. So it was like, great, I can do this another night and it'll be fine. And I think my liver at that time was just kind of like, well, it's not chemo, so this is easy. Girl, this right. is like water. We got you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so so that was certainly something that was a little chaotic. And, you know, up until that point, we're talking about 2011 and 12 now, the whole like medicinal marijuana versus legalized marijuana conversation was very different than it is now, as I'm sure you can remember. And so like I'd never done it up until that point because I was so afraid of getting caught for one. I was kind of a Pollyanna in that sense. Um, but at that point, I was just like, you know what? Forget it. Let's just do it. Let's let's have at it and we'll have fun. And my friend Scarlett made me some some brownies uh, for a party that we were having at my apartment. And I fully overserved myself with the brownies and with alcohol. And I was a hot mess for like two days. <laughs> it was really terrible. Yeah, those um, edibles last a very long time. Ooh, but it's not even just like edibles now that are like very controlled and you know how many milligrams are at. This was like right. th throw the pot in some butter and throw the butter in the brownie batter and pray for the best. Like you just, <laughs> just didn't know. Like you didn't know. There was no way to measure any of it. Um, and so like I spent a good it was a big batch of brownies and I kept them around and I spent a good couple months just like sa smooth sailing <laughs> through that batch of brownies. <laughs> Wow. Um, so, like, with the drugs and with the, the sex as well, I'm trying to get, like, to some of the reasoning because that's that's very common. A lot of people actually go through that. When they go through situations like that, they turn to sex and drugs. So I'm trying to find, like, the reasoning. Can you tell me, I know, like, people say, you only live once. So I thought I was going to die. So if I was going to, I may as well do this. So is there something that you can say to kind of explain that part of it? No, no, I'm not shaming. No, no, of course. I, I absolutely can. So what really kind of started it was um, 
all of my chemotherapy was not working. Like, the tumor just kept growing back. Like, it would shrink when chemo was happening, and then as soon as chemo was over, it would grow back. And it was very scary to watch, because you could literally see it growing. It was so gross. Um, And then I got switched over to a radiation regimen, which was a whole different team that I had not met before whatever and so i got down there and they were so, they were so nice i mean they were just some of the nicest people that i had met in that hospital and they had asked me what my life was like before any of this happened and no one in that hospital had asked me this before they were just like who who were you before any of this happened and i pulled up my own my old headshot from when i was like doing theater full time and they were like oh, that's you and it just like hit me so hard that like I didn't look even remotely close to that anymore. I was like, I had no hair. I was bloated from all the steroids and prophylaxis that they were putting me on. I just felt so disgusting about myself. And then to hear that, which they meant no harm by, but to hear that and just have it be like so such a dig on my appearance, which like let's face it, I'm vain as vain as hell. Um, especially back then when I was like the star of the show and I was like, I'm pretty, um, and glad that person's gone and dead because, <laughs> and that's a different conversation, but it really, it hurt in a way that was like, I don't know how else to make myself feel better about the way I look right now than seeking external validation through men that I find attractive. And so like. I don't know if you would call this catfishing or not, but I would use my old photos and to get them to come over. And then that is what they got. And it, like, it was kind of like a mixed bag as to who was going to continue or not. Right. <laughs> but um, I spent a good couple days in like this rage cycle of just like hooking up with anyone who would do it because I just wanted to feel good about myself. And every time it didn't feel good, every time it made me feel worse and i just kept thinking well it, i would justify it by being like oh well this guy was just this that and the next thing so it was his fault and then move on to the next one and it just ended up being like one of the most painful parts of that period of time looking back you know it, it wasn't it wasn't good i kind of wish in a way i wouldn't have done it i'm glad that i had that moment to realize that i was doing that and i was kind of in a, in a sense self-sabotaging my treatment and my recovery um but in the moment it just was because i i didn't feel good about myself or the way that i looked and and the drinking and drugs thing that was that was also kind of what you said like you only live once and this might be the train might be pulling in the station soon so like let's just pull out all the stops and do it you know no breaks let's go um so there was a mix a mixed bag of that this is this is profound i always think i'm discovering something <laughs> but i like how you say that when you were saying that you know you you didn't feel as handsome as you you probably were you just didn't see it you didn't feel that so a lot of times people talk about not just women but promiscuous people and a lot of times maybe they're going through something similar to this and we're always kind of misjudging people because we don't understand what's going on with them were you also telling people what was going on with you while this was happening no I just let them wonder, you know, if they had a problem with the way that I looked, they could leave. If they didn't have a problem, I didn't need to discuss it. And anyone who brought it up, it was just kind of like, what? Right. And I would just gaslight them out of my apartment. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I think also the mistake that we're making here is that, you know, 
I, I'm I don't want to make any assumptions, but I feel like most people come from a place where they think monogamy is the standard and monogamy is the natural order of things, and it just isn't, you know. And right. so, like the spectrum of what works for you and what is natural for you and how you feel is very different than what other people might feel is normal and natural for them. And so, you know. I, I don't want to say that people who are promiscuous are doing it because they're hurt in some way or they're seeking out something or they're damaged in some way because I don't believe that. I think specific to my circumstances with what we're specifically talking about is is what I was doing. Yes. But like any any random person on the street who decides to have multiple partners or decides to engage in multiple partners, that might not be their their reasoning their reasoning might just be like this is what works for me right mentally like. emotionally physically yeah and that's do your true thing. And, I, and, and i'm glad you you did clear that up because i don't want to you know over generalize anything and make people think i'm talking about them but i'm just speaking in in like specific cases when there are certain people who people try to write off because they are that a lot of times when they dig deeper they see that those people are usually going through some some issues but that's just something i'm gonna keep in the back of my mind because i don't want to you know put that on well, someone it's, else. it's it's both it's not either or it's not every mm -hmm. single person is going through something it's not right. every single person feels like this is what works for them of course there's going to be a spectrum of all of those things because every right. human is different and so, like, if if having multiple partners is what's natural and works for you and you're coming at it from a place of being an adult and making informed decisions, then more power to you, girl. Get it. But, like, you know, if you are dealing with something that you're not feeling good about yourself and you try to self-medicate by seeking external validation, then that is something that you should maybe talk to someone about or at least search within yourself to find the answer as to why. Okay, so when you, I know you said in all the times you realized that that was not a good idea. Did you know at that moment or did it take some time for you to find out that that wasn't a good idea? Well, it wasn't a good idea for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, just emotionally speaking, not in a good place to be doing that, right? Like, <laughs> I did not have the capacity to be like, sure, let's hook up with the neighborhood. Um, but then <laughs> the, other, the other part of that, too is that you have to keep in mind that I just went through four rounds of chemotherapy and I was on radiation. So my immune system was in the basement if I even had one at that point. And so then that also could have opened me up to a multitude of other complications in the form of STIs or whatever the case may be. Um, and so again, that is like the adult informed decision part that I'm talking about where like, yes, I was an adult. Yes, I was informed. And yes, I made that decision. Were they great? No, but I made them anyway. Okay. So I have a friend named Tommy. He is big in the musical theater. I can't wait. I'm going to show him this as well. He, he loves the, the musical theater. So I want to like mention your book to him and your book has actually been on a lot of tv and insider and abc nbc and i kind of ran very out of lucky line. to be everywhere <laughs> That's good. So, and i know you said you had no intention on becoming an author so what what kind of happened that got you there um, it is it is the first part of the book. I met someone about three years out of being cancer free that had just found out that they were cancer free. And we were 
being promiscuous. And <laughs> um, after the fact, I had said something to him because he told me that he was coming from this particular neighborhood, which I call Hospital City. It's like the east side of New York in the 70s. It's where all of the hospitals are. And I said to him, because of the block coordinates that he had given me, Sloan Kettering? And he was like, so freaked out. He didn't know what to say. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's cool. Same, same three years ago. And so we, I calmed him down. He was kind of like caught off guard and, and we sat down and just talked about where he was at. And he kept saying things that I also had been feeling for years and didn't know how to articulate. Like he was like, I don't like getting up in the morning. I'm every conversation I have with my friends, I want to punch them in the face because what they're saying is just annoying the hell out of me. Or I don't want to be around my family because they're saying dumb shit that makes me feel like I don't care. And like going to work was a whole thing for him. And he just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And all of these things were like, that was the entire first year of me being out of the hospital. And at that point, it still was. It still was like, oh, God, like, <sighs> this is life, you know, okay. And that's kind of what started this whole thing. So I reached out to a couple other people I knew who were younger who had had cancer in, in different versions of severity. And I said to them, when you were out, is this how you felt? And every single one of them was like, yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. And I had never been told anything along those lines. I never see, saw any kind of resource about the after math of having cancer that I was like, I am going to write about this. I'm going to talk about how, what got me there. And then I'm going to talk about how everything fell apart and did not feel like, oh my God, you're cancer free. You can go back to your life now because you can't. Because there's nothing to go back to. Everything has been killed off or changed so much that you no longer fit into that space. And it was such a huge eye-opener for me that I was like, I have to write about this. I have to. And so at that period of time, I had a desk job that was super easy. It was like a front desk, like whatever. And so anytime that I wasn't needed or working on something, I would write and it took me like six hours a day, five days a week for a year. And I cranked this book out and it just was, it, I made it everything that I wanted it to be because it talks about money and career and relationships with your friends and relationships with romantic partners and sex and addiction and drug use and codependency and body dysmorphia and just the whole gamut of everything that happens to you after you go through something as traumatic as cancer. And of course it translates to other things that are traumatic. Anything that makes you realize your mortality or makes you look at yourself in a different light. It's very much like, oh shit. <laughs> right. That is true. Um, so let's go a little bit back to the book. I know there's some okay. comedy in there. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Absolutely. So um, the musical theater part of the book is that every single chapter is a different musical. So and it's themed. So it's not like you need to know the musical per se to get what's going on. 
I tell my story and I infuse parts of the musical in it, mostly characters. So, you know, we we named <laughs> my friend uh, out on the West Coast. He and I named my tumor tumor Seymour. Uh, from Little Shop of Horrors because it kept growing and we just were like, <laughs> we're going to name it Seymour. Um, and so, you know, that that chapter of Little Shop of Horrors, even though the tumor's name is Seymour and that chapter ends, Seymour travels with us throughout the whole thing. And so by the end of the book, after going through all of these different musical theater chapters, you have this huge pile of musical theater characters in different worlds where they don't belong. And you're like, what is happening here <laughs> and uh it really kind of hit and it really kind of made the universe in which you're living chaotic because you're like why is that character here they don't belong in this world and then it's like but they're over here that shouldn't be here and it just was like this whole like what's happening so you but again like if you don't know musical theater you don't you won't it, you just won't get the the nuances and the easter eggs right. of it all um, right. If you do like musical theater, you're going to pee yourself because there's a lot of them and you'll love it. <laughs> so you'll get it. So I'm not big on it, but I have a lot. Like I told my friend Tom and then my niece, like she's always making me go to one of the, you know, we have, I live in New Orleans and we have Broadway now. So she's always. Oh, yeah. Me Good. I Good on your niece and Tommy. Shout out to both of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I probably wouldn't understand all of the jokes, but um, I just—it seems the story, like, like the story is still there. Yeah, it's the story there. is still there, and you don't necessarily need to know the shows at all to really get it. It just adds another layer of hilarity, um, you know. And I, I do try to—I have a dark sense of humor, and like I do try to take the more serious things that were happening and flip them on their head and make them funny. Um, and there are some parts of it that are very not funny, but you know they're they're framed, I think, pretty nicely with things that are, you can have a good chuckle about. <laughs> I got you. So when you got, what was your first, I guess, big interview? I know you said you were, you made it to Insider. What was your first big interview, and how did you feel when that when you got that call? Insider was my first one. Um, it, and it took forever. Oh my god. I got like the green light on that in like November and I don't think the article actually went up until like March. And so that whole time I was just like wow. <laughs> when is this happening? Um, but I mean all of them were just one right after the other after the other and I was so lucky to have basically one a month um, for, for a period of time. And you know the Insider kind of started it and ABC followed and then you know we had a bunch of a ton of podcasts i can't even i think it's like over 60 or 70 or something like that that we've done that i've done and um you know like pix 11 new york was more recent with fox 5 and it it just felt it, i don't want to say it was overwhelming because they were spaced out and again like insider took five months to land and it was just like at that point it was like okay cool <laughs> so when you first got the call from insider did you start telling people about it and then you had to wait five months for it to come out or do you did you wait until march i told family and close friends <laughs> there's a theme here i was just like i just got this article and it's gonna come out <laughs> um but the rest of them i mean it was mostly just my family and i'm 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 pretty good maybe at keeping secrets <laughs> um so the rest of them were kind I, I think after i got like the first one or two out of my system it was like oh, okay this is just how this is going to be and you know it, it felt great it still feels great and it still feels nice to like look at the list of things that i'm 
that I'm in that are like legitimate publications and you know it feels pretty pretty rock star you know nice so i'm sure you always get the question who are you before so who are you after who am i after um <laughs> not who i was before sorry repeat that i said well not quite after but who were you because it's not over technically so uh i mean your life is still here so it's not you know after i mean like are you now like how did that change you to become the person you are today um i think the biggest thing is that i'm for better or worse most likely better uh not as self-involved as i was back then i think back then you you couldn't tell me anything like i just knew everything and i knew where i was going and everything was going to work out because of course it would and that likely resulted in me treating people badly or saying things to people that I didn't necessarily mean and I was just saying because I thought that that was that was my place as the person who was going to make it um to let you know and like I can't think of any necessarily specific examples but I was you know I don't know if it's if it's my 20s are to blame for that <laughs> But whatever that was, uh, was very quickly anchored by going through cancer. And a lot of that went away. And I think that's true for anyone going through something traumatic where you, again, have to face your mortality in a very real way. Where whatever posturing ego bullshit you were doing before, all of a sudden doesn't matter. And then you realize how kind of great it feels to not have to think about that because it's easier not to have to think about that. It's easier to just exist than to have to be like, oh, this is the person that I am and I'm going to dress this way and do this thing. And like, it's just easier to be like, I'm here in shorts and a t-shirt. Have a good day. You know, it's like. Okay. So with the. And this is kind of like a, a secret, so we'll just kind of brush upon it. And you also, you're you're going to get picked for a TV series. Am I saying it right? Sure. Um, it's not really a secret. I have been talking about it. It's just kind of, it's a huge process, right? So, like, yes. <clears throat> we have, the book is the source material. We've been working on a lot of things on the back end. Uh, as you know, there's not a whole lot we can do because of the things going on with the with the WGA strike, which just went through. But that's you know they don't have anyone to do any of the writing, so they have to wait right. for the actors to come through. So um, they're very much hand in hand. And once all of those things are down, then we're going to start pitching. We're going to start pitching to networks. We're going to start um, pulling in investors and money and stars, and we're going as high as we can up the the ABC list of people, and hopefully with directors and composers and everything because it's also going to be a musical TV show um, and I'm so excited about it um, especially because the way that I wrote the book was very much in the mind's eye of like Rob Marshall who is the director of um, the Chicago movie musical with Catherine Zeta-Jones so like when I was writing the book that's what I was thinking like oh you're in reality and then all of a sudden something happens and you're not um <clears throat> and so like i feel like it's going to translate to screen very easily and very nicely and i'm very excited about it <laughs> so i know you said when you were writing you had that kind of in mind so how did you go from book to i think i want this to be adapted into film or musical i don't how think i don't think there 
I don't think there really was a moment where I didn't think I wanted that. I think I wrote the book because I wanted that. Um, I think in my mind, it was easier to write it as a book than it was to write it as a script first. And uh, turns out I was right. <laughs> Thank God. Um, but yeah, it's it. I don't think I, I, I think to answer your question in short, I don't think I wrote the book without thinking it was going to be something else. That's I'm asking because I also wrote a book and it is also going to be adapted into film. But I always oh, hey. tell, always tell people when I was writing it, I always had the idea that this would be on TV, that I would see this. So I wrote everything strategically as if it were going to be on TV. So I'm just saying that because I mean that's important. Like a lot of people think, well, not saying that they think, because I mean it does happen that way, other ways sometimes. But I wrote it for that very purpose. Yeah, and honestly, you know this. It makes it so much easier to adapt. It like it's already there. It's done. And like what is in your head, you can put down into like a pitch deck and like have that be present for whomever you're going to send it to. And I don't really want to do it any other way. Like I, I'm working on like two other books right now that I'm already like, yeah, this is a series. <laughs> like we're already right. there. <laughs> so when you're doing that, are you doing like the pitching and all the ideas for you have like a team or this is all just you, this is all Edward? No, we have a team. I don't want to do all of this. Um, I don't think I know enough people to do this myself. That would be a lot of research on my end. And again, and I say this, I say this as, as a truth for anyone in like their career or experiencing cancer or anything else along those lines. Like you are not an island and you should not behave as such have people around you build yourself a team find kindred spirits that you can work with and and maneuver through life with and help each other out and you know like my my team that i have right now is only two people and that will get bigger but both of them have done amazing things and know so many incredible people and we're just kind of like compiling a list of everyone we want to send this to and how we want to do it and what's the process and this that and the next thing and who's lit agent to use but it's um I wouldn't want it any other way. I don't want to do it by myself. I've self-produced things in the past and it's incredibly difficult and it makes it so much harder for yourself. So like to anyone, you, whomever, have a team. Don't try to be a hero. Have a team. <laughs> Trust me. Yes, I know. You definitely want to have um, somebody else with you. So do you think that this would, you would still be doing this or would it be... Uh, more difficult if you did not live in New York City? Does it help being so close to the action? Um, You know what? I think <clears throat> until you get to filming, no. I think you can do it from anywhere. Especially, I mean, to be honest, you're closer to Atlanta, and Atlanta is like popping off with TV film. It's insane. I have so many friends that have moved to Atlanta for that reason. Like, seven years ago, that would have been like, you're doing what? But, you know, Tyler Perry bringing L.A. to Atlanta, I mean, that's just what's up, you know? And, uh, like, we've also gotten to a point now where a lot of states are realizing how much revenue can be had by bringing film crews in. And so they offer incredible tax rebates. I mean, I think it was, I was just talking to a friend of mine that I'm a co-producer on her film the other week, that Minnesota offers a 50% tax rebate on any money that you spend as a producer in their state. Wow. So like if you have a million dollar budget, the state will write you $500,000 back. 
Like it's wow, but like awesome. but like that's the thing. You don't need to be in New York City to do it. Yes, you do for certain things, but the democratization of being able to create content and getting a hold of good cameras and making good sound and being in, being able to find people around the country to send it off have them sign an NDA and a whatever you need them to sign and send it off to have them work on it and do color adjustment or sound, whatever you can do that from right where you're at. And like at some point, yes, you will probably have to be in New York, LA or Atlanta, but like until you get to that point, you can do it from where you're at. Right. So I know you said you never wanted to be an author, not an author. You probably didn't want to be, a producer or anything like that but how do you feel now that you are all of those things i kind of love it i kind of love it it's so much easier than being a performer (laughs) (laughs) i mean just just different i guess um i and i don't think that my performing days are over per se they are for right now just because this is what i'm focusing all my time and energy on um and it's the first time i've ever done that and it's the first time that i've ever had this much clarity in in moving forward with something and it's just like yeah well of course this is going to happen because we're doing all the right things to make it happen and um you know it's 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 nice it gets a little confusing sometimes because you're like what hat am i wearing today what am i doing today (laughs) and then it all gets jumbled up and it confused but it's it's good to have more than one skill set you know like being one thing sure that that can help you but if you can do a lot of shit then you can go do a lot of shit for a lot of people (laughs) right so speaking of doing a lot of shit who is going to be playing your i guess your character or what what, are you going to be cast I am going to be cast, but not as myself. Um, Because like you said, I think it's more interesting when a young person has cancer um, than if someone who's like pushing 40, like just, just die, take me on back and shoot me. Um, But like the, the person that is, I'm hoping will be playing me. I will not say just yet, Um, but we do have someone in mind. Um, They're not a star. They're not a name. They're a personal friend. And uh, we have, he and I have already discussed it we're hoping that things work out in that way but i'm a big fan of creating things where the lead characters and the supporting characters are like unknowns and then the people who like kind of pop in as cameos are like the big stars i think that's really fun and it makes it more interesting because then you're on the lookout for them that's kind of the way we're doing mine we're in the casting phase so i want a lot of most of the people to be you know regular people but then i want to have some cameos here and there with some bigger people so yeah so that's- i think it's so right. much fun so the way things are now how easy it is to do tv and film i'm saying easy as a, you know as compared to 20 years ago yeah. now you can kind of record and put it on tubi or amazon or something like that do you think that that's a that helped a lot or did it hurt it well, I mean, <laughs> with the strikes going on right now, it is uh, definitely hurt. But um, if the WGA negotiations for what is going on with what they got and out of their contract is any indicator of how it's how the negotiations are going to go for SAG-AFTRA, I know they were meeting again today, October 4th, after they had met on the 2nd. Um, I'm hopeful because the WGA basically got every single thing that they asked for with the exception of one. And that one was kind of like a half. Um, 
so I'm I'm hoping that moving forward it will not be hurt and it will be help. Um, democratizing anything is always going to be better for the people, and you know these corporations. I know we need them in some ways and we don't in another. Like obviously we would love to have our things put on HBO Max, whatever, and uh, you know like any other streaming platform. Yes. And also, please pay me accordingly. <laughs> like, this is my life's work. I'm not going to sign it over to you for, like, you know, a cheese sandwich and, and a, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So I'm, I'm excited to see what happens after those negotiations because I really do believe very strongly that we will be the ones who win in the end. Love it. So as we are coming near... I like to ask, what would you tell your 17-year-old self? If you can go back and talk to 17-year-old Edward, what would you tell him? You're not fat. (laughs) (laughs) So so simple. I like that. I like that. So simple. Well, because that that bitch was basically anorexic and weighed nothing. I'm six foot four. And at 17 years old, I weighed like 185 pounds. And, like, that's not a lot for someone who's that tall anyway. But then on top of that, I am, like, ribcage. I am, like, 95% ribcage. And so for me to weigh that little is dangerous and terrible. And, like, please just love yourself a little bit more. Because I spent so many years trying to be skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And it just... I look back at photos and I'm like, how are you alive? like for real so that that's maybe the first thing i would say <laughs> okay i hope you put these pictures on your uh your social media because i i definitely want to see this picture you said that you would show people your headshot i need to see these pictures oh i i think if uh, a simple google will do that but i'll send I, you look, a I copy did, I, did, I, was, <laughs> I was actually googling you while you were saying it oh funny <laughs> saying, no those are more those are more recent but um <laughs> No, no, that's recent too. That's that's me. That one is me when I was twenty one or twenty two. So it was a couple years before. This one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was literally sitting on the toilet in my apartment, and that background is my shower curtain. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and look, I used I'm... that headshots for years. <laughs> look, I'm, while you were talking, I was googling you. I was looking. I was I want to see this picture, but I mean I think you look good in all of the pictures. Well, thank you. Lighting and lighting and airbrushing will do amazing things, but um, I will I will show you the ones that I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I'm like I don't see this the one where you say you were skinny, super skinny. I mean, um, I it's it's yeah. I mean, I think it is that one that I'm thinking of. It's I'm in like a purple purpley blue shirt uh, with a green background, but I'll I'll see if I can find it. I'll send it to you. I gotcha. Okay, I'll be looking. So I'm still looking at your pictures. Um, but again, I do want to say thank you so much. Um, it has been a pleasure to speak with you. Can you please let us know how we can get this book? Oh my God, yes. If, of course. So if you are in New York City for any reason, um, the Drama Bookshop on West 39th Street carries it. They're exclusively the only in-person store that has it. And I wanted that on purpose because Lin-Manuel Miranda co-owns the store. And it just is like again validation, and we love. Um, but right. otherwise, if you're not, if you're not New York City, you can find it online pretty much anywhere the books are sold. Of course, Amazon, but we hate them. So Barnes and Noble, 
um and a bunch there's a bunch of uh, i think there's like 30 or 40 different retailers okay. so like it, it's out there um and otherwise you can find me on uh cancer musical theater and other chronic illnesses gotcha okay search it um and then i am on all platforms on socials at edward miskey gotcha okay i appreciate you so much edward i am going to um i definitely want to get the book and i am going to be patiently waiting i don't care how long it takes i'm going to be waiting to see your film adaptation I'm so you have such a beautiful wait. spirit i'm not sure if anyone ever told you that but you have a great personality oh, thank a nice you so spirit. much Oh, you're good at this okay. you're very good at this donna i like oh, really thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay well again thank you and thank you all to the listeners who have been with us all this time i hope you had a lot even though we had a lot of laughs and it was quite funny most of the time it was a very serious subject and um it was very touching just to hear that because you know you were so young and all that went on and that could happen to anybody so I appreciate your testimony and I appreciate you staying so positive and being a force to be reckoned with. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you, Edward. And thank you all again, listeners. And you all have a great day. I will see you or you will see me next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.